Hello and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the football team in children's BBC mid-80s sports comedy drama Jossie's Giants were actually called the Glipton Giants, but before that, in episode one, before Jossie took over, they were called the Glipton Grasshoppers. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers, that nobody else ever seems to, is sports writer Carrie Dunn. Carrie, what you up to where can we find it? Come on, find me on Twitter, at Carrie Sparkle, and buy my books, etc, etc. We'll talk about those as we go through this episode, won't we? We will do, but your first choice features somebody who... I don't know if anyone will be writing a book about him, because basically the star of this programme could be a looks and familiar choice in himself, because once upon a time, he was everywhere, and then, all of a sudden, he wasn't at all. Just a little rest of all the show. What a wasted life you're leaving Dancing till the dawn Youth and future gone Love will pass you by unheeded Just a soul on hire To the highest buyer Cast off when they tire Tomorrow Friends may come but they'll go Leaving just a gigolo A heart that breaks with sorrow. Okay, yes, that was just a gigolo, and that does sound like Tony Slattery singing it. That's because it's the theme from Just a Gigolo. Carrie, what was this? <laughs> that like a philosophical question or actual factual question? So this was a sitcom in, I think it's 1993, and it ran for seven episodes and seven episodes only, in which Tony Slattery plays, I think he's a teacher, and he loses his job, and so obviously he becomes a male escort. That is the sum total of the plot line. That's exactly the long and short of it. And I did think, because I sort of half remembered seeing it, and I thought that can't have been all there was to it. And I looked up, that's literally the whole situation and all that happens across those seven episodes is that he works as a male escort and there are various associated comic interludes to do with that. And that's it. There's no grand plot about people finding out or potentially finding out or his career being at risk or whatever. It is just that. And I noticed the entry for it in the Radio Times Comedy Guide said it was, you know, quite a likeable sitcom, but the format did not stretch beyond seven episodes. And I think that meant that literally... It didn't even stretch to seven episodes. It's a strange little curio. I found six of the seven episodes on YouTube, so I have been re-watching them. 1993, as you say, Tony Slattery was everywhere, literally everywhere. So I kind of understand why they were looking around for some kind of vehicle for him to do something mainstream. And I was obsessed with Whose Lines Are Anyway at the time. And I loved Tony Slack. I just loved him. And so I was so hyped for this. I remember watching it at the time. And I was just like, I don't think I thought it was very funny then, to be honest. But I really liked Tony Slattery. So I persisted. And watching it back now, and I still really like Tony Slattery. And I still don't really think it's a very particularly funny show. And I find it has quite an odd vibe about it. I think maybe if it had been made now, it might get a different response because there's a very striking vulnerability about Tony Slattery as the kind of centre of this comedy and it makes you feel a little bit uneasy because he's kind of playing opposite his brash younger brother character and there's kind of a comedy of contrasts but there's just this really endearing but also slightly disturbing vulnerability about Nick the character that Slattery's playing and it's really interesting I don't ever remember seeing a character like that from that era of sitcoms before it's just kind of predating the lad sitcom era it's kind of just before you know men behaving badly all that kind of stuff really came to the fore and it's a very strange little piece of work and as i say i don't think it's massively funny although i did chuckle at some of the slapstick and i think it's kind of interesting to see a lot of older women acting in a sitcom and being portrayed not as kind of grandmas or someone's mother or the mother-in-law but as women who are interested in sex i thought that was quite that's quite interesting and groundbreaking still I think but yeah odd show odd show well it was quite an odd time for those kind of sitcoms on ITV because around 1993 they really were trying to do something different with them nobody remembers any of these now but there were things like the gingerbread girl which was Janet Dibley as an unmarried mother which was kind of deliberately you know downbeat and edgy over the rainbow which is a spin-off from the commitments 
with the other two of the women in it, not the one that marries Jimmy in the film, the other two have a new band. And as you say, there was Men Behaving Badly, which everyone forgets started on ITV, which wasn't typical ITV first, so they were pushing in different directions. And I think this was very much that. This is, regardless of how it fared at the time, how it holds up now, it was very different to say, I mean, even to say Surgical Spirit, which wasn't bad, but that was the big ITV sitcom of the time. Things like this were completely off at a tangent. Yeah, it's very strange tonally. I mean, I would suggest if people are interested or kind of vaguely remember it, go back and watch it now. The first episode isn't on YouTube, which is kind of a bit annoying because it would be quite helpful to see how they actually set some of this up because I really don't remember 30 years on. But the way that these characters are portrayed is just fascinating to me. I remember it being on a little bit later in the evening, I think maybe half past eight, rather than kind of like earlier than that. The fact it was a male escort, I think that was kind of supposed to be edgy and boundary pushing, and I think they might have put it on later and that might have been a selling point at the time. And as we've alluded to, this was, along with things like Peter's Friends, really the start of what could only be described as the slattery onslaught, because before that, obviously, as you say, he'd been in Whose Line Is It Anyway? He was the third lead in That's Love, which is one of the biggest ITV sitcoms mm. of the 80s. And, you know, he did a lot of things with Fry and Laurie and people like that. But suddenly, yeah. in about 1993, he just starts doing everything. I mean, even apart from the really obvious stuff, I've just made the list off the top of my head of the panel shows that he presented. Amongst many others, he got Trivial Pursuit, Tips and Fibs, P's and Q's, The Music Game, Going for a Song. That's just some of them. And if he wasn't hosting them, he was a guest on them. And there's that... Yeah. Have you ever seen the first ever Have I Got News for You? book where there's like a two-page joke about versions of the show from around the world and in each one you know it's got kind of actors of that ethnicity sat behind the desk in each one Tony Slattery's been like well it's not photoshopped (laughs) because it's too early but pasted in Oh, awesome. He did everything, and then suddenly, chances were if you turned on something like Room 101, he'd be on it, or even on the radio, you know, forever on just a minute, and I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, and so on. And then suddenly he disappeared. And I remember mm. thinking what's actually happened to it. It was only years later it came out. You know, he's been quite self effacing about it. He was working too hard, he was helping himself stay awake should we say, Mm. to do all these gigs. And he just had to break down, basically, and withdrew. And a couple of years ago, he did a show at The Fringe, but I saw he did in, basically, a record shop in Liverpool that's got a theatre space in the back. He did the warm-up kind of version of Whose Line Is It Anyway in there. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, he was great and he really appreciated the audience, but any agent could have just put on huge sell-out Tony Slattery is back working progress shows. But he'd obviously thought, I need to get that you know that drive back and I really admired him for that oh that's lovely I mean watching him back in this sitcom he's such a likeable presence to watch on screen and I think that's one of the things I enjoyed about him when I saw his other television stuff when I lived in London I used to live not far from him I remember seeing him on the northern line one day and it was one of those things like do I go and say something to him? Because I would love to be able to tell lots of different actors and performers, you know, how much their work has meant to me over the years. And I didn't, and I kicked myself. And then he was on Twitter not long after I saw him. It was not long after he did his big Guardian interview with Hadley Freeman. So I tweeted him and just said, I saw you on the tube and I didn't come over and say hello. I wished I had done. And he was so lovely about it. He replied and had a nice little chat. And I just thought that's just a lovely thing to do. He seemed to like really, really care. And he probably doesn't care that some strange woman on the northern line didn't say hello to him but I didn't want to bother him but he was very nice about it so there you go well that's one thing I thought while looking into this was it is a shame that none of the things that he's really done that he's really known for the sort of thing that really a commentary on like a DVD or Blu-ray would be a well I say Blu-ray there's never going to be just a gigolo Blu-ray but you know you wouldn't get a commentary on any of those things and I think that's really sad because he's the sort of person who is a walking commentary mm. And I imagine that's razor-sharp yeah. memory for the details of working on things as well. Yeah, and, I mean, if you look at some of the cast as well in Just a Gigolo, it's a fantastic ensemble cast, and most of them, obviously, still quite big names and still Wanda working. Wanda Ventham was Wanda Ventham, it. yeah, she was. She's fantastic. That would be something, wouldn't it? Let's bombard somebody to get this together, do a DVD release with commentary from the stars of Just a Gigolo. I would buy it. There we go. OK, well, I wonder if you'd be clamouring quite so much for a reissue of the Lone Album by your name next choice who were a band that I'd completely forgotten about once I listened to this it all came flooding back
Okay, that was a bit of Don't You Worry by Madison, spelt M-A-D-A-S-U-N. I'll be coming back to that. Carrie, who were they? These were kind of a post-Spice Girls intent to capitalise on the girl group market, I guess. And let's face it, that song is an absolute banger. Great single. If you only have one single, that's a really good one to have. But the reason I remember Madison so clearly is I saw them live at Wembley Arena. What? They were, I know. And I had completely forgotten this until I was racking my brains and thinking, what, you know, what do I remember that people won't remember? I'm sure they must have been supporting Five, which is another conversation entirely. And it must have been 2001. I can remember my sister and I went together. And yeah, Madison were one of their warm up acts. So I have seen Madison live at Wembley and they can always say they played Wembley Arena and I saw it. That is quite astonishing me because all I knew really of them was they were one of those bands that seemed to be loads of in the early 2000s that were massive in, like you say, that kind of post-Spice Girls way and I include male acts in that as well for about six months and then it was just like everyone was like, oh, we don't care anymore. Who even were they? And the idea that they played Wembley, it's just... I know. Blowing my mind. I couldn't remember what they looked like, so I looked them up. And they don't look that memorable, let's be fair. Apart from one, it's basically, I think we should refer to her as the Cleo Rockos one. Because she looks exactly like Cleo Rockos. Oh, I'm not sure that she would thank you for that. But yeah, they weren't the most memorable. And it was one of those sets where you know, you're watching the support act. You're like, come on, do your song that we know and then get off and we can listen to the act we've actually come here to see. It was a bit like that. You're sitting there waiting for them to do Don't You Worry. But yeah, Wembley. Well, they have that got to number 14. Also, Walking on Water, which I didn't remember that. Having re-listened to it, I'm surprised that was a single. It's not really very catchy. That got to number 14. Feel Good got to number 29. And the album, The Way It Is, didn't get to number anything. Right. And the two weird things looking into it. First of all, they were on V2, which is sort of an offshoot from Virgin Records. Virgin, yes. Yeah, one of Branson's, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, but it was designed to be a bit more kind of maybe slightly to the left of mainstream. They wouldn't have had, say, somebody like Manson, who are going to bring back into this in a second, but they'd have had weirder pop acts. I don't really think Madison were that weird. They were slightly kind of alt rockish for the time clothes, and that was it, really. I don't, I'm don't. i quite it, surprised yeah. they were on there. The other thing is, there's very little information about them out there. And another example of, as Mitch Ben and Grace Dent both talked about on here that sort of black hole there is of early 2000s pop music between the end of physical media and really the rise of streaming where so much now has kind of just disappeared yeah i find that kind of fascinating though there's this kind of you imagine being a pop act who got to number 14 i mean that was a big deal back in the day wasn't it being in the top 20 and then you can just kind of step back into your normal life and no one ever knows that you're a pop star who did top of the pops and played wembley it's just just incredible isn't it to think about it that way I think one of their problems was as I say Madison was spelt that really weird way that was yeah. a bit like Manson so there's room for confusion there and also more or less exactly the same time Madison Avenue spelt the correct yeah. way did Don't Call Me Baby which you will still hear pretty much every day on Radio 2 now so they probably got lost in between <laughs> they lost in the Madison mix yeah I do think it's quite sad though that you know you could for no matter how short a time for you could have have this brief moment to be really popular and then be almost entirely forgotten about. I mean, but there's so many other bands who have that concentrated in the briefer... I mean, even from an indie point of view, people remember menswear, don't they, even though yeah. they had a similarly mercurial career? And in some ways, maybe, you know, it's what pop music is designed for, as in this kind of pop music, to be consumed and then discarded, yeah. really. But that makes me feel very sorry for the performers. Yeah, I guess I'm kind of intrigued now. Do you think Madison were performing under stage names? That's why we can't track them down. We will never find out who they are because they were just pseudonyms for their album and then they just disappeared without trace because we'll never know what their actual real names were. That's possible. Apparently they're called Vicky, Abby and Vonda. Now, That's so generic, isn't it? I'm already suspicious. Who's the only other Vonda? Vonda Vonda Shepherd. Yes, who, you know, Ali McBeal was in the ascendant at that point. So if you're looking for a stage name, you might have gone straight for that. <laughs> but if any of you are listening, because I've no doubt that if anyone who knows 
you hears this or hears that you're on this will point you towards it. First of all, I apologise for the Cleo Rockers comparison since you suggested it might not be too favourable. But if you are out there, please let us know because we've really both just drawn a blank here. And also, your famous single was an absolute banger. Okay, well, let's face it. Madison, we're really never going to get to do a Bond theme, (laughs) which is a very convoluted way of linking into your next choice, which amazingly, I've managed to find an advert for. Right, pay attention, Bond. This is the Sinclair ZX Spectrum Plus 2. It's a fully operational computer with 128K memory, but it comes with three James Bond games and a light gun that fires armor-piercing shells. Now that's your assignment. No, no, don't sit in that chair. Sorry, Bond. Haven't perfected that yet. The Sinclair ZX Spectrum Plus 2. Okay, there you go. That's an advert for the Sinclair Spectrum Plus 2 James Bond 007 Action Pack. Carrie, I'm liking the sound of this already. Oh, this is amazing, right? So I was a Spectrum child in the 1980s. My dad would buy the Your Sinclair magazines and I would do all my kind of really basic programming like a little nerd. Well, because I am a little nerd. Now it's like a bigger nerd. So yes, I had my little tiny little specky and I had the little plastic keys and then one Christmas this was my present the Sinclair Spectrum Plus 2 so that's the one with the inbuilt cassette loading things so actually there rather than have to put the cables into your cassette recorder but the James Bond action pack this was just completely crazy now I remember mentioning this to you before and you were like what are you talking about but it was like like a handheld gun thing with like like an infrared beam when you pulled the trigger and you would point it at your TV screen that you had your spectrum plugged into and you do like shooting it was like a shoot 'em up game for your house in your Sinclair spectrum so there was like I remember there was a clay pigeon shooting game and obviously you also shot enemy agents and things as well and yeah it's just completely completely crazy and the interesting thing is apparently it's from 1989 for a start that's about three years after the plus two came out the whole story there was that people are probably thinking it was a Sinclair machine it was actually after he'd had to sell his interests in Sinclair research to Alan Sugar who weird aside here there are some old episodes of the computer program on the iPlayer at the moment when you watch them Alan Sugar is witty and perceptive and has a lot to say and seems quite likeable and it's as though once he got to a certain level he thought do you know what I'm so rich and powerful I don't need to bother with basic human interaction anymore (laughs) and he became the character he is on Twitter these days so he introduced I mean people go on about how much they love the rubber keys on the spectrum and the fact you had to plug a big peripheral port in the back to use a joystick which you know (laughs) will break very easily when the child tripped over it because you have to use it on the floor and so on people at the time were kind of i wish my spectrum was a bit more durable and have better keys and you know this came on built-in tape recorder as you say but as well as pushing a model that had been on the market for a couple of years it was two years after the living daylights which is what the game was based on in yeah. fact it came out after License to Kill. So <laughs> what was going on there? I don't know. Apparently also, as well as the game and the gun, there was a memo from M with the instructions in it and James Bond's passport. Was! There was! Oh my goodness, yes. Did you use right. a passport in the game? Was it like a code-breaking thing or something? Or was it just you could wave it round and say, look everyone, I'm James Bond. James Bond, yeah. I can't remember. I'm going to have to see with my parents. I've got the loft, aren't I, when I go home next. But my goodness, yes. I had I completely forgotten that. Oh my this was amazing. I mean, I cannot begin to tell you how exciting it was to open this on Christmas morning. And I suspect my dad would have been the driver in getting this console and also that action pack because he's a big James Bond fan and he's much more much more technical than my mum. So I don't remember him like trying to steal it off me or anything or try to kind of hog the computer time. I think he was just kind of excited to get me into gaming and also James Bond. It was great. It was ridiculous in retrospect because I had a tiny little black and white TV that I would plug the spectrum into. 
<laughs> I mean, this is not great graphics, I have to say. And so me with this tiny little black and white TV screen, this huge, massive gun with the infrared thing. Oh, my goodness. Nine-year-old child. Terrible. Terrible. What I'm wondering, though, is about the quality of the game itself, because quite often in the 80s they do, they were hamstrung by, first of all, the turnaround time and getting these games out on limited technology, and secondly, by what the Spectrum could actually do. Mm. But a lot of these movie tie-in games weren't very good. I mean, I've mentioned them here a couple of times. I had to give my regards to Broad Street Game, which is basically you're Paul McCartney, you go to tube stations and you wait for session musicians to turn up and ask them to play on your album, which to me, that is the best game ever, but I appreciate why a lot of people felt shortchanged by that. But they were usually terrible. But I had, I never played The Living Daylights, but I had the A View to a Kill game, which I remember being really good. And this was made by the same people. So I'm assuming, particularly if you had an extra peripheral for it, that it must've been quite good. I don't really remember it vividly. I remember the clay pigeon part of the game. It's kind of like the first round. So it's like little clay pigeons go the end that's what you have to shoot i wasn't great at it i have to say so it was only kind of rarely i would get onto the next level of the game where you actually have like people and stuff but i don't think that really mattered to be honest it wasn't it wasn't really about gaming quality it was just the whole excitement of it i guess and i hadn't thought about before about the way that the years don't really match up in terms of the (laughs) james bond films because you know why would you i was just so hyped to have this (laughs) this ridiculous spectrum plus two yeah it was great if there's any on eBay, I might have to look into it and get myself one again. I'm sure my husband would think that was fine. I looked up, they're about £200, but that's how I also found out. This might come flooding back to you now, the cassette that the game was on, because apparently it was one of those two-part with two cassette games that they had before the actual loading tone for the game. They had a specially recorded message from Desmond Llewellyn as Q telling you what to do. Now, my memory is when they port audio content onto Spectrum game tapes, that never worked because you forget it was on there and for example I had you know there was Band Aid and Live Aid and Sport Aid and so on yeah. there was Soft Aid which was a collection of Spectrum games with a insert card written by Bob Geldof saying thank you for helping to feed the world by wow. playing Spellbound and Starpike that had a sort of each side do they know it's Christmas so you start loading you hear <laughs> through the Spectrum and I imagine you probably forget this was on there. They just hear this like little tinny crackly voice that you couldn't make out what it was saying. So if you threw a couple of beats behind it, you could make it like a Desmond Llewellyn rave, I suppose, given it was 1990. <laughs> okay, we're moving on to your next choice now. And I'm really, really hoping they didn't have an effigy of Desmond Llewellyn in this. <laughs> Okay, no quick confused there. So that was a bit of Waxworks by Reckless Eric. So Carrie, why have I put that there? So the Isle of Wight Waxworks in Braiding. This is an absolute fundamental part of my childhood, along with Spectrum Gaming. And I have gone down a bit of a rabbit hole in recent months because I visited the Isle of Wight quite recently. And the Waxworks has been gone, long gone now. And there's this Facebook group trying to track down where all the Waxworks have been rehomed. And <laughs> where they've gone since the waxworks closed down because the whole museum was sold off at some point and some of the stuff was sold off separately <laughs> there's this, just photographic evidence of these poor waxworks just being dumped outside buildings or the chamber of horrors has been repurposed as a halloween attraction at a local pub but yes this was absolutely incredible and also incredibly horrific part of my childhood memories and holidays because they had this really quite vivid chamber of horrors and I could tell you worrying amounts about devices of torture as used in the 16th century purely from my holidays in the Isle of Wight in the 1990s Yeah it's another thing that's surprisingly despite the group you mentioned being very active and thriving and very dedicated to tracking them all down I love them, I love every single person in that group, it's crazy and when they find like heads or arms or something they belong to a waxwork, <laughs> they buy them and they have them in their houses and they're trying to piece it all back together and I love that but apart from that there's very little out there all the 
been mm. able to find for certain is it was originally called Braiding Waxworks. It opened in 1965 and it closed in 2010. And a really enterprising guy in the 2000s bought it and kept trying to relaunch it, trading on that reputation in different ways. It was rebranded as an experience at one point and it incorporated something called the World of Wheels at one point, which is like a history of wheels. Successively, there were all these relaunches in the 2000s. So Madison might have opened it at one point. I don't know. The only thing apart from that is there was a notorious model of a sweep who lived in squalid conditions yes, there was a local was spy yeah. yeah yes it and there was a queen there. victoria that tapped its foot yes that was quite sinister you kind of sit there and you watch and she'd be breathing and tapping her foot when she got impatient and there's also there was one where there was a skeleton playing the organ playing to carter and fugue in d minor and then the coffin lid next to him would rise up and some would sit up out oh yes this is high tech for the early 90s it was incredible i don't understand why not more people went to it in that case that sounds brilliant i think it's a very specific kind of entertainment i guess after kind of the channel tunnel and stuff you then compete with euro disney and stuff aren't you that being more easily accessible people aren't going to the isle of wight on holiday and they're not looking at going to a waxworks we did we went to the isle of wight a lot when i was a kid and my sister and i both vividly remember the chamber of horrors when i found that facebook group i was just sending screen grabs to her do you remember this bit do you remember this bit and there was some really quite sinister stories bearing in mind how young we were it was like a little girl who died and this tiny little chimney sweep who was being stuck up the chimney and oh and as i say the chamber of horrors there was a henry the eighth waxwork and i'm not quite sure what his title isle of Wight was but of course that was all very graphic in how he killed his wives good times good times well it's reminded me a little of something i've wanted to bring into this for quite a while and nobody's ever chosen anything that's really reflected it was wigan pier as in george orwell the road to Wigan Pier in the 80s had a kind of what was described as a living museum on the site where it had a recreation of you know parts of Wigan through the ages like there was a Victorian classroom that you were counted into by a teacher who made you do sums and inspected your handkerchiefs and so on all kinds of great things like you know the tableau with the Wigan casino with some people said it had people doing northern soul dancing I don't remember it though I can't imagine like two poor actors having to backflip all day <laughs> on a loop but there are all kinds of great things like that but dotted throughout it there were waxworks and things like station porters and so on you know just random yeah. points around this museum there were also a lot of people in there who were just standing dressed kind of old-fashionedly anyway because in those days people that you got in these kind of tourist attractions were a little old-fashioned but they would be standing stock still and you just think they were in the waxwork and then they suddenly move when they've had enough oh. staring or whatever they've been staring at for half an hour I remember there was one year and I refused to go in the Chamber of Horrors because I was just like, I, I, I couldn't deal with it. I don't know why, because it would I would have been in the year before and I must have gone the year after. There was one year I just refused to go in there because I didn't want to see any more of the horrific torture devices. But yes, that kind of sense of peril is an important part of a childhood holiday, I think. Are waxwork exhibits still even a thing, really? Because obviously there's still Madame Tussauds. Well, I assume it still exists. I don't actually know, but they used to be all over the place yeah. and then they dwindled down to I think the infamous Louis Tussauds is still in Blackpool yeah. which he was supposed to like a 14th cousin 8 million times removed of Madame Tussauds like yeah, yeah, famously they weren't very good but yeah. I think they started playing on that ironically eventually yeah, they did. yeah I think waxworks are not so much of a thing anymore are they I know Madame Tussauds now does obviously they've got the planetarium there as well and they do the kind of superhero interactive experiences and things like that I don't know. Perhaps people don't want to see waxworks of famous people because we see famous people all the time on the internet now. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Yeah, we probably want to see less of them, really. We'll go to just a, a darkened room with no internet and no windows and we'll just like lie down everyone, just be quiet and not watch any screens and not see any famous people I'd pay for that and also you have to worry about who qualified these days you probably get like Instagram influencers it would be like the Strictly reveal wouldn't it and everyone go I don't know who that is he's not famous so we go what's worth of him okay well I don't imagine any of the cast of your next choice were ever really up for having a waxwork pay commemorating this show this is something I didn't even know existed and I was almost quite appalled to find out it did <laughs> here's a song from it and we'll see what you think in a minute
Take Me or Leave Me from Rent, but that's actually from Rent Remixed. Carrie, who was doing the remixing? Oh my god. So, this was the brainchild of Kylie's artistic collaborator, William Baker, who for some reason, at this point in time, fancied himself as a theatre director. And not just a theatre director, a musical theatre director. And he decided that what he would do was take on Jonathan Larson's beloved Rent and give it a modern twist. He decided to do this by casting Siobhan Donaghy from The Sugar Babes as Mimi. Anyone who knows Rent or has seen Rent or has passing knowledge of Rent will know that Mimi is Mimi Marquez. She's supposed to be a Latina pole dancer, essentially, club dancer. So casting Siobhan Donaghy from The Sugar Babes was slightly left field casting, I thought. So that's her. Leon Lopez from Hollyoaks. Remember him? He yes, was he yeah, was also he was playing Brookside, Collins. wasn't he? Oh, he was. He was. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So he was playing Collins. He's actually very, very good. Luke Evans. Famous, famous Luke Evans. He played Roger. Again, he was excellent. And I interviewed him not long afterwards in Starbucks in Vauxhall when no one knew who Luke Evans was. He had a nice little chat and he was mentioning that he was going to go to LA for some auditions. So that worked out pretty well for him. The other big casting, Denise Van Outen as Maureen. Now, all credit to Denise Van Outen. I think she's actually a very good musical theatre performer, but she was also a good 15 years older than the rest of this cast, who were all supposed to be probably mid-twenties. So yeah, that was the casting, and then the remixing was just some very, very odd choices in terms of presenting Out Tonight, so Mimi's big kind of club number, as kind of a burlesque dance. That was kind of odd. Angel's death scene, oh sorry, spoiler alert when angel dies he was just kind of walking up some stairs with some wings on his back so it looked like he'd been out dancing at heaven or something it was all extremely extremely bewildering and also kind of disrespectful to the entire show it made literally no sense and it was just essentially terrible terrible i don't know why i have to talk about terrible musicals when i come to talk to you i guess because good musicals people remember it's just the terrible ones it's only me who remembers it so so vividly well i have been trying to work out how and why this happened when there was no need for it because rent has been running almost continuously since 1993 one of the most successful broadway shows ever has won nearly every major theatrical award i don't know why you'd need a remix version this was 2007 it was Two years after the film of Rent, which let's say that has a mixed reputation at best. Mm -hmm. So already you're looking at it's not a good idea to meddle with it. And I was trying to think of what was the reasoning behind it. And there's only two things I can think of. One is that the idea of remixing things that weren't music had cultural currency at that point. Weirdly, it started Chris Morris doing Jam and Jam, which Jam is a series that seems very different now to when it was on anyway. It feels much more consistent than, you know, it felt like a lot of highs and lows at the time, but Jam, the sort of late night visually remixed version with different music in, was kind of seen as, looking back, I can't see why it was considered such a revolutionary idea, because, you know, anyone could, like, change the order of a TV programme, throw a filter over it and put different music on. It's just, he did it first. Mm. You know, you could probably have done that with Steptoe and Son in the early <laughs> 60s. For a couple of years, that filter down, that became a thing of doing, you know, they called them 2.0 versions of things and it was yeah. a bit annoying the other thing was did they have one eye on the big sort of reality show thing that sprung up around musicals then were they hoping there'd be an equivalent to any dream will do or how to solve a problem like Maria and instead of that notorious thing of the animated Graham Norton across Matt Smith's face and that really dramatic Doctor Who cliffhanger would we have got Denise Van Houten over Gene Hunt saying I'm having oops in life on 
Oh, uh, I'd never really thought about that. But interestingly, there is a crossover there because Francesca Jackson, who was one of the, was she one of the Marias? Was she one of the, I think she might have been one of the Nancys. She played Joanne as a lipstick lesbian, obviously, because you can't have, you know, butch lesbians who wear DMs. Oh, yeah, that's what they, they kept changing lyrics, that kind of thing as well. So rather than her seeing to her parents about going to see them, then saying she's got to wear a dress and a bra. What did they say instead? Something ridiculous because she was very late 90s kind of lipstick lesbian instead so yes there was a crossover there but i don't know why specifically they picked rent i mean i guess because they'd done a uk tour of it after the west end production closed and i think everyone had always kind of felt it was feeling maybe a little bit dated perhaps because it was so specifically set at that moment in the 90s when it was written interestingly i've only actually seen one revival since that really worked for me and that was done at theater Cluid in mould a couple of years ago and it's directed by Tamara Harvey I believe who I think is about my age or a little bit older and she set it so specifically in the late 90s it was hilarious it was just the eye for detail really really made it work it was things like Roger wearing those little string friendship bands that everyone would wear at school in the 90s even the shoes it was just so so 90s like every single outfit a woman wore on that stage was like I wore that I wore that and I think you have to treat Rent now as a period piece it's just so very specifically of the 90s and trying to update it again they tried to do that with the AIDS storyline in Rent Remix and it was just horrendous it just did not work at all trying to update it just doesn't work if you treat it as it was written if you set it when it was written then it will work if you're trying to update it do something modern you just end up getting tangled up and falling over flat on your face in the middle of the west end i think there's two very telling things that i found out about it which is one is that denise van outen bailed quite early do you know who she was replaced by i do cat slater from eastenders yeah jesse wallace who you know is a great actor but if Again, you're parachuting her into older. a west end show <laughs> You are thinking, oh, she's big in EastEnders. She's famous off the telly, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is, The Guardian gave it one star out of five. I tend to think that when The Guardian are slating something for the sake of it, it's two out of five they give things, which somehow sounds worse in your head than one out of five. They reserve one out of five for things that should not have happened. That should not even have existed. Yeah, I think I'd go with that. And I don't think it's... I think there's been one revival of Rent Remixed, hasn't there, but... I think that's it. That should never have happened if it did. I should have to speak to someone. That should just be left in a filing cabinet somewhere to rot. Okay, moving on to your last choice now, which is something that I suspect you would be very keen to see again out of curiosity. Terry Wiseman just instructing the uh, rest of her players where to stand for that huge kick that she delivers into the Red Star half, but headed back by Eileen Connolly. This is Geraldine Williams, Republic of Ireland International. Dangerous cross, which Wiseman comes out and misses, and it's in! Sarah Scambry has scored! Red Star Southampton take the lead! And the youngest player on the park has got the goal. OK, clip there that I think we're both going to be on soapboxes at some point during this because I had to ask you to locate a clip from this for me because I spent about half an hour trying to find some examples of this and Google was literally saying, did you mean men's FA Cup final? Mm. And so that's a clip from, I believe that's a 1992 semis for the women's FA Cup. So Carrie, this is about Channel 4's coverage, isn't it? So as you know, I'm a sports writer and I write primarily about women's football and I have written several books about women's football and the most recent one came out this summer coinciding with the women's Euros. And something has come up again and again and again in recent years when I'm talking to players who are playing now and they always say to me I never saw women playing football on television when I was growing up and it's always been really bizarre to me because I remember vividly watching women playing football on television when I was growing up and I've always been really puzzled by it and I too have tried to find out what I was watching and when I was watching it and what years I was watching it I think I've kind of narrowed it down basically I think Channel 4 had the rights to show the women's FA Cup from about 1989 onwards for a couple of years and I think maybe up to 93 
And I think they showed some matches live and I think they showed some just as kind of extended highlights. I found records in the House of Commons of various MPs congratulating you know, teams in their constituency for winning the FA Cup and saying, and also congratulations to Channel 4 for supporting women's football. So yeah, there's this kind of weird generational glitch where people who were watching football or were kids in the like late 80s, early 90s would have been able to see women playing football on television. But people born any later than about 1987 wouldn't be able to remember it at all which is obviously the entire generation of footballers now so they wouldn't have seen it and so yeah it's really really strange to think that there was this football on television there was film there was footage and so little of it is available now so I've managed to find that clip which I think is from Channel 4's coverage from 1992 but I can't put a definite channel on it but I'm pretty sure it must have been but it's the case of pretty much all women's football history before about you know 2009 maybe in terms of domestic competition I was talking to a lady called Carol Thomas who was the captain of the England women in 1984 and they actually reached the first ever women's Euros final they played Sweden and they lost and I was talking to her about the newspaper coverage and she was like no there wasn't any newspaper coverage at the time oh I don't think there was even any pictures I don't think our match was even filmed and I managed to find extended highlights on AP of the final. So I've seen about 20 minutes of the 1984 Women's Euros final. And I was talking to a colleague on a picture desk of a national newspaper, and she actually found out that a photographer had taken pictures, but he'd sold them to some archive and they'd never digitised them. And so this summer, she actually managed to find some pictures of this match from 1984, this England team who reached the first ever Women's Euros final, obviously. You know, 40 years before the England women did it this summer. And so they've got pictures for the first time of this achievement. And it's been absolutely brilliant to see them be rewarded, I guess, for laying the foundations for this summer's Lionesses triumph. So I guess I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about the way that women's football has historically been kind of brushed over or pushed into the back of a picture library somewhere or, you know, filmed and then the archive footage completely lost. Because it just seems so sad to me that there's so many people who would never have even known about players like Marianne Spacey in that clip or Doncaster Bells, Jill Coulthard and Karen Walker all of whom I've spoken to in recent years. And they're around and they're happy to talk about their amazing footballing careers. Just people don't know about them. People seem to think that, a bit like some people think that men's football began when the Premier League began in 1992. They think that women's football began you know, 10 years ago when the Women's Super League started and it really, really didn't. Yeah, I think there's a case here for... A lot of people probably would look at the fact that Channel 4 covered it and you know make some observation about the fact that Channel 4 probably couldn't get the rights to anything else. But I I think if you look at what I mean you know what Channel 4 were doing in general in the late 80s in particular but what they were doing with football was way ahead of the curve because it really was I know nothing about football but I know that they have Football Gazzetta Italia which yeah. was essentially it wasn't just about the Italian league it was a magazine show there was politics in it as well that would have probably been anathema to a lot of people who just wanted to watch Match of the Day at the time but that's what I think it became it was Gaza Soccer School mm-hmm. which looking back you know no, that seemed comical at the time but the biggest footballer I'm going to say in the world at that point absolutely just a small little funny show with kids on the Saturday morning on Channel 4 it was the sort of thing they didn't do in those days and again everyone but also the manageress with Sherry Lungy about the female mm. manager was Channel 4's biggest drama for a couple of years and I think whether by accident or design they saw the way that things were going to go in the 90s and with coverage of the Women's FA Cup as well and they haven't had enough credit for that. Absolutely I think that Jennifer were doing amazing stuff then I mean the manageress is still this kind of big popular cultural kind of monolith isn't it it's always like if you see a successful female manager it's always like oh will she manage in the men's game and people kind of hark back to the manageress but I think also the BBC at the time were doing some interesting stuff they had hour-long documents documentary on the Doncaster Bells called The Bells which was just after Pete Davis's book I Lost My Heart to the Bells and this The Bells documentary was so controversial at the time because it showed them as they were they were based obviously they were footballers but they were you know amateur footballers they were working all week and on Sunday they'd go out and play football and then they'd go out for a drink with their mates and it was quite controversial at the time the FA were not very impressed (laughs) at having one of their leading lights portrayed in such a way but that also gave rise to playing the field which you might remember 
Um, yes, yeah. Yeah, so that inspired the writing of Play in the Field. And after that, obviously, Kay Mellor did loads of other stuff. So it's kind of an interesting knock-on effect. Yeah, and it is, like you say, it's sad that the people who kind of paved the way aren't getting the part of the story, the credit that they deserve. And oh, it is because yeah. we, do, we do live in a world where, A, like you say, people either have short memories or, you know, limited memories. And B, there are people who will always swoop in and say, I thought of that. Mm-hmm. when they didn't when somebody before them did. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with taking that idea and making it better. But I think that's seen as undesirable these days to admit that you took a cue from somewhere else. And yeah, there were clearly there were women players with entire careers before any of this really kicked off. It's just, yeah. as you say, it was sort of, I don't know who's even really ridiculed. It was just overlooked. Yeah, it was. It was absolutely overlooked. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that women's football was actually banned until 1971. The FA banned women from playing on affiliated pitches. So although women were still playing on you know, rugby pitches and Parkland or Scrubland, they were basically ignored. So it wasn't until it became increasingly, increasingly popular and you know globally and the football authorities realised we need to take this on board. Otherwise, women are going to be organising themselves forever. We'll have no control over it and we wouldn't want that. The women actually got taken on board and it obviously wasn't until 2011 that the Women's Super League was set up. There were competitions before that, but it's only been in the past four years that the Women's Super League has been fully professional. And I think that's kind of really important to remember, particularly in the light of this summer, that everyone's, you know, love watching the Lionesses and it's brilliant. But this is the first generation of women who have been full-time professionals for their entire careers, these younger players. Someone like Jill Scott, who's at the other end of her career, or Ellen White, they would have been part-timers when they first started. I think one thing that's really heartening, though, is that there hasn't been any... That's why we're seeing them, you know, the team campaigning now for, you know, better access to football for girls in schools and so on is that there hadn't been a concerted push. Actually, you might correct me on that, but that's from my vantage point. It was something that's got through because they were good and they kept at it and it kept steadily building. And I like to think that, like with Jodie Whittaker as Doctor Who, it shows that, you know, people can harumph all they want and complain about it's traditionally a man's I mean, I won't even name him, but a Sir Aging ex-footballer earlier this week complained about all the attention being paid to women's football and said, and I quote, football should be about men going down. I think he's giving away a little too much there. But for all people might want to rail against diversity and try and legislate against it and throw silly tantrums in public or get into the government specifically to look down on people who aren't like them. You can't stop it in the world anymore because things are just coming through because people actually, now that the world is smaller and the media is bigger, people can see things and say, yeah, that's good on its own merits. Yeah, I have kind of, I guess I have two positions on it really. And I find it kind of quite difficult to reconcile it. I mean, yes, the Lionesses are breaking through because they won. And I think that's fantastic, obviously. And, you know, seeing them win the Euros was literally one of the best days of my life. I cried pretty much solidly for four days afterwards because it meant so much to me and it was wonderful. But I guess I always kind of, there's a little voice saying, Men never have to be good to justify themselves wanting to do something. I don't know. I guess there's a little niggle of concern there for me that if the women go to Australia and New Zealand next summer for the Women's World Cup and they lose in the group stages and it's an ignominious failure, then it's always that, well, I told you women's football was terrible. Whereas if the men did the same in the World Cup, it doesn't really matter because, you know, men are allowed to play football wherever they want to do. But I do completely agree. I mean, I think this is... This is a fantastic push. I think it's been lovely to see people who don't even really like sport want to engage with the Lionesses. And not just because they're winning. I think it started earlier on in the tournament before they got to knockout stages. They're just quite an engaging set of players. They're a likeable set of players. And I think it is incredibly, incredibly admirable that they're using this moment in the spotlight to try and pave the way for the next generation. But they've also done something wonderful, which is to make sure they're always acknowledging who came before them. And I think this has been as I say, a great oversight in previous decades of women's football history, not acknowledging the people who went long before rather than the people who went just before them. They're looking back to the 1970s, to the 1960s and the people who played during the ban. And 
they're thanking them because they know that they wouldn't have any of the opportunities that they've got now without those trailblazers. So yeah, that's been lovely. Well, I can back that up absolutely with, yeah, as I say, I know very little about football. It's just I was never that interested. But I got really into the women's Euros this year. Yeah, but I didn't really sort of, because I thought it would look ridiculous if I was suddenly saying, oh yeah, I'm watching football because the women are playing. Either people would make the obvious joke about why I was watching or they'd accuse me of just wanting to be woke or whatever. So I was just watching it and enjoying it but my family are all much more into football than I am and normally I would just be casually asked have you been to see your Thor film yet or there was something in the paper about that band you like her on I was casually asked a family get together are you watching the women's Euros as though they just picked up on the fact that I would have enjoyed it and I think that's a I don't want to position myself as you know this important cultural touchstone in the gender wars but I like to think that's a nice angle to think of it from. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I don't think you're alone in that. I mean, I've got some neighbours just up the road from us and they're not into sport at all, but they know that I write about women's football. And I got a Facebook message after the quarter final. They're saying, we're loving watching the women's Euros. We know nothing about football or sport, as you know, but we can't stop watching it. We're really enjoying the tournament. And I just thought, that's lovely. I just... This is one of the reasons I love sport is that it's like the communal experience. And I love to see other people enjoying what I love too. And it, you know, it's, it's so nice that, that people find themselves engaging with particularly football, which I think has been historically quite exclusionary of a lot of people, a lot of demographics. I just feel that lots of people felt that they could dip a toe in the water and feel welcome this summer. It's been lovely. Well, if people did get on board with the Women's Euros and wanted to know more about the subject, where could they find that out, I wonder? Well, they could find it out in my new book, which is called Unsuitable for Females, The Rise of the Lionesses and Women's Football in England. Available now at all good bookstores. And also, I'm going on a bit of a UK tour over the next two months. So if you're in pretty much any major UK city, I'll be somewhere near you soon. So come and say hello. You never know, there might challenge you to a game of five aside. <laughs> Can we not play the James Bond clay pigeon shooting game instead? <laughs> I'd be up for that. Carrie, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Well, at least it's free. A big book of columns and features by Tim Worthington. More details at timworthington.org.